Welcome to In a Perfect Policy, hosted by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Catalyst for Science Policy, or CASP. At CASP, we work to advocate for science-based policy, engage lawmakers in their policy-making processes, and promote science outreach within the community. My name is Emily, your host for this episode. Today, we are going to discuss the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report, on the Climate Change Report that was released in August 2021. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, is a body of the UN created in 1988, which aims to release a report on climate change every five to seven years. The most recent report was the sixth that has been released uh, since 1990, and the report aims to be neutral in that it discusses relevant policies and their projected outcomes, but does not recommend any of the specific policies or favor any particular solutions. Hundreds of authors nominated by both governments and outside organizations from previous fields volunteer their time. The selection of authors aims to include people from developed and developing countries and be balanced in terms of age, gender, and work background. The IPCC does not conduct its own research. Instead, the authors consult thousands of sources to synthesize the current state of climate research and project the likelihood of climate outcomes. Calibrated uncertainty language is used, which means that Phrases like very likely are used, and this corresponds to 90 to 100% likelihood of the outcome, while the phrase about as likely as not would indicate a 33 to 66% chance that a given outcome will occur. The report covered a wide range of topics all revolving around recent climate science findings, including the certainty of human influence on the large and rapid changes occurring all around the earth, and the resulting weather extremes like heat waves, droughts, cyclones, etc. The report also elaborates on how global surface temperatures will only increase along with these weather extremes and how many of these changes are irreversible. However, a very important topic discussed was how we do in fact have a chance at limiting the warming effect if specific, rapid, and large changes are made to reduce carbon dioxide, methane, and other greenhouse gas emissions. The public was alarmed by this striking report and many media responses bordered on apocalyptic for good reason. The key line often cited was that this was a code red for humanity and articles tended to focus on the scope and scale of climate destruction, but didn't always pivot to action items and potential policy solutions. We hope to touch on some of that today. In this episode, we will hear an interview with Dr. Gregory Nemet who is a professor of public affairs at the Wisconsin Energy Institute at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His research focuses on energy, climate, and science and technology policy. So I'll start out by asking if there was anything that stood out to you in the report. I would say a few things stood out to me one is uh, looking kind of uh, backwards, like what has happened to the climate. Um, it's pretty clear now, well, it is clear now how much temperature change has, has occurred already. So we're now at 1.1 degree of temperature change. And just to put that in perspective, 
you know, we had this international agreement signed five years ago called the Paris Agreement. And that's where 190 plus countries, including the US, agreed to limit temperature change to two degrees from what it used to be before we started burning fossil fuels and make efforts to keep it to 1.5 degrees. And so, you know, one question that comes up is a lot of times people assume we're starting now at zero and we don't want to get to 1.5, but we're not at zero, we're at 1.1. So that was one item that came out of the uh, latest IPCC assessment report that came out about a month ago. Um, so that was one important takeaway. And then I think the other important takeaways, uh, well, and then there was a lot of substantiating trends that we already knew about, like that the climate has been changing. Um, so that temperature indication, but we also see it in sea level rise and we see it in ice cover and those are falling as well. So is the climate changing? That was very low uncertainty anyway, but now we have more precision and seeing more change. And so that's been important. Um, and then two, the other part looking historically is the question of, yeah, but is it us? Could it just be natural processes? The climate has changed a lot in the past. Um, you know, there's been things like uh, sunspots uh, that are relatively short term and volcanoes that are even more short term and then longer things like the orbit of the Earth around the sun that leads to ice ages and things like that. And this is not anything to do with those natural processes. And so the confidence that almost all of the change is due to human activities, and it actually turns out it's more than 100% of the warming that we've seen is due to humans. And how can it be more than 100? It's because humans have done some cooling too. So the soot particulates we put into the atmosphere cool a bit. So we've actually warmed more than we're actually seeing because we've added some cooling too. So that was a stronger um, message than it had been made in the past. And so that was an indication too. Um, and then the other you know, items I would mention would be more kind of what's going to happen. And so I can talk about those um, as well, if you like. Um, I might also just add before we dive into it or go back to those future impacts that, so just to give you a sense of what the IPCC really is and how it works. So I, so I think sometimes people just kind of take it at face value, but just understand how it works. So there's this United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that started 30 years ago to have international agreement on climate change. And the Paris Agreement that I mentioned is part of that. And when that was set up around the same time, there was this idea, well, we actually need objective scientific advice to inform the policymakers that are negotiating what to do about climate change. And so the UN set up this intergovernmental panel on climate change, and it's, uh, it has a big effort every six or seven years, it comes out with a new report. And those are called assessment reports. And the first one was in 1990, and then every six or seven years since then. So now we're at the sixth assessment report, and that's what came out a month ago. And then the last thing on how it works is there are three parts of the IPCC. So the first part is on climate science, and that's what came out last month. Second part is on climate impact, so what's going to happen, and that'll come out early 2022. And then the third part, which is what I work on, is what should we do about it? And that's called mitigation in the jargon of the IPCC, but it really is about how do we reduce emissions and that'll come out at the end of March in 2022. So um, yeah, so we just got was the climate science and what we'll get starting early next year then are what's gonna happen 
And then what should we do about it? I was wondering if there's anything in the report that surprised you. I think the language about attribution, so attribution is a word that means, is it us? Is it human caused? The confidence there is much stronger than um, it had been put before. So in the previous assessments, it was using words like highly likely, and then it got changed to extremely likely. And now it's, I should go back to the, the literature, but it's, it's something like all the evidence points to humans causing most of the, uh, of the change. And so this idea that it actually might be due to, to non-humans, to natural is pretty, is dismissed at this point. So that's a big step for the IPCC because they have to be rooting all these claims in scientific literature and those top level claims, which goes in the summary, has to get approved by governments, not by climate scientists, but by governments. And that's why it's intergovernmental, not international panel. Um, so there is this assembly where the countries come and they redline text and they negotiate about what the text comes out. So to have that have passed that, not only scientific rigor, but also government acceptance of it is a big step in terms of confidence. And I think that was always, the way it had been put before was always a little bit careful and probably too careful because it gave um, a lot of potential to say, well, maybe it's not humans, whereas none of the scientists were saying that. Um, but for whatever reason, it stayed that way. But that's not what they're saying now. They're saying it's because of humans. So that's been a big change. And um, and then about the impacts, what's likely to happen. Um, you know, extreme weather events has gotten, you can see it happening, and that's part of the report. Uh, and then the other thing, I would say there's a bit more kind of precision about the what the impacts are likely to be. So f in general, what we're seeing is that places that are dry are likely to get drier and so we're already seeing in the u.s west in canada west and other parts of the world that tend to be dry are having much longer periods of, of drought and dry years and that contributes to low humidity and fires and that's what we're seeing a lot in australia u.s canada even and high temperatures as well and then places that have tended to be wet are getting wetter and that's for in wisconsin that's really the biggest impact that we're likely to see is extreme rainfall events and higher precipitation. And so that affects quite a few things downstream. It affects agriculture. It affects how our infrastructure and water systems work. Um, so yeah, that's gotten more precise too about how, um, how well we know what the impacts are going to be. Still lots of uncertainty about how bad they'll be. Um, but it's really, you know, between where we are now, we're already seeing a lot of the impacts and a lot worse than that. So that's, yeah, that's kind of where we are in the on the impacts. I'm going to steer in a slightly different direction, a little bit more towards your expertise. And I'm wondering if there are certain technologies that are easier than others to scale up to, to help us reach zero emissions. Yeah. And I can talk about this kind of from my own, you know, research perspective. Um, you know, the work that I'm contributing to the IPCC still needs to get approved by governments before those headlines come out. So I wouldn't be saying anything because I'd actually know, I don't actually know, I know what we've drafted, but I don't know what'll actually survive the redlining process by the governments uh, next March. So we'll see what the reports actually say in the end, but I can tell you what the research that I do is showing. And that that's a big reason why I'm contributing to many parts of this report is that people understand this has become important. It's been a huge change in the last 10 years of a set of technologies that have gotten much, much cheaper 
And I would say four technologies are making a huge difference. So one is wind power. So that can be on land or now increasingly uh, on water. And those have come down in cost by more than 50% in the last 10 years. Then the second one is solar panels. And those have come down in cost by over 90% in the last 10 years. And what's remarkable about solar is that I was just looking at this today, a list of the top 10 largest solar power plants in the world. And some of these, one is they're unbelievably gigantically huge, like 2 million solar panels kind of all linked together in one place. Um, but they're all over the world. There's some, as you might expect, in China. One of the top 10 is in the US. There's one in India. There's one in Egypt. There's one in Chile, one in Mexico. And it's really different than other technologies where maybe rich countries would have been the, the ones to really get going on it. And it's really been rich countries plus middle income countries that are driving solar. So it's a, it's a much more accessible technologies, a technology than others have been in the past, probably because it's become so inexpensive. And also it's so modular. You can do it with 2 million panels all together in a giant field of like 800 football fields, or you can do it on the size of a house, or you can do it uh, on a car where it's like one panel so and anything in between so wind has been important especially going offshore solar because it's become so cheap very similar story to solar is batteries and batteries that we use in our phones and laptops those same lithium-ion battery packs have come down in cost by a factor of 10 as well so 90 percent cheaper than they were 10 years ago and we can use those especially in two ways one is to fuel vehicles so instead of using oil turned into gasoline or diesel we can just use electricity that we can make in a clean way and even if we don't make it in a clean way it's still cleaner uh, to do you know burn natural gas or burn coal which is not good for the climate but it's still better than just burning gasoline in an internal combustion engine so batteries really open the door to much bigger change and then the last one that i would add is digitalization and so that's a broad term that we use for talking about software, for the internet that's connecting things, for sensors that link things and they can send information around, and devices that are connected to each other. And all of that makes it easier to have a electric system that's based on wind and solar that aren't there all the time because it's not sunny all the time, it's not windy all the time. But if you're connected, uh, especially the information is connected, there's a lot more that you can do and especially with the transportation connection as well. So those four things, solar, wind, batteries, and digitalization have really made it possible to talk about having a grid that has zero emissions in the next 30 years, which is what we need to achieve the Paris Agreement. And that you know, really wasn't a serious consideration 10 years ago, around the time of the last IPCC report. So that's been a really big change. Uh, and it's been a change for the better. I mean, at the same time, the climate is definitely getting worse and the impacts are becoming more apparent. And that's bad news, expected, but also bad. Um, but the ability to do something about it is way more feasible and much more affordable than people uh, would have said, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, so I have a follow up question to that. You talked about the grid. Uh, in your opinion, should we prioritize making the grid cleaner versus the products or infrastructure that use the grid? Or does it not matter if we are still using cleaner products that use a dirty grid? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say two, one thing and two because. So uh, one is we need both. We need a cleaner grid and we need cleaner end use devices. So there, one part of that is not going to get us to where we need to go, which is zero emissions by mid-century. So that's the first thing is we need it both. And part of the reason is it takes time to get there. So, you know, if we, cars last 10 or 15 years. So if we even had 50% of new vehicles be electric, which is true in a lot of countries right now, not in the US, but in a lot of other places, that doesn't mean we have half the cars on the road are electric. It takes a while for that to happen. And so it doesn't make sense to wait to get a perfectly clean grid before we start doing electric vehicles. And similarly, it doesn't uh, make sense to you know, not work on getting the grid clean um, because we're not really using it for vehicles yet. We got to do both of them because they both take they both take time. So yeah, there isn't a choice there. It's a both and um, because 30 years sounds like a long time for a lot of things, but in energy and climate, it's a pretty quick thing. And if we look at transitions in the past, like going from a wood-based economy, which we had in the U.S. 200 years ago, to one where coal was the most important energy carrier, and then to one where oil is. Those transitions took 70 or 80 years, and we only got 29 years till 2050. So we need to do it faster. So we really need to do both: cleaner grid, cleaner power sources, and then more efficient and cleaner uh, end use, including cars, was is a big part of that. So going off of that, we can think of it sort of in terms of three levels. Um, internationally, nationally, and individually, what do you think are the prominent barriers for making the transition? Some of the barriers that were big ones in the past, I just don't think are big ones anymore, like that it's too expensive that we can't afford it. I just don't think that's true anymore. We've got these technologies in a lot of places and cases, it's cheaper to make electricity from renewables than it is from fossil fuels. So I wouldn't say that's just, it's too expensive. It could be that there's upfront costs um, that come up and that's hard, even if it's over its whole lifetime, it'll be cheaper to have solar or wind or batteries or electric vehicles. Um, but if there's an upfront cost, so that's part of it is how do we deal with that? So financing is part of it. Um, another part that's a challenge is some of these issues are infrastructure. So, you know, it could be up to a hundred million US households to decide on whether they want to buy an efficient electric vehicle or to buy a gasoline powered vehicle. But that still doesn't take care of whether there's a charging infrastructure that makes it easy to, you know, drive from Madison to northern Wisconsin or go to Chicago and back without stopping for a charge. Um, you know, that's a concern to a lot of people. And so we need chargers. And so that's one effort that the Biden administration has talked about doing is doing a half of a million charging stations around the US so that you can charge quickly um, wherever you need to, kind of like how gas stations are today. So there's a bit of um, infrastructure support for this whole effort that uh, I think is crucial to making it happen fast enough. I, I think it'll happen anyway, but if it happens in you know the 2100s, it's less relevant to the climate than if it happens in the next 30 years. Are there any specific policies that you would like to see implemented to accelerate the move toward clean energy? Yeah, I mean, I think the policies that I think about are ones that make, um, it's that acceleration point. Yeah, 
Um, so how can we make it all happen faster, fast enough? And the one that's under discussion in the US right now, um, there was an infrastructure bill that was passed um, by the Senate with a bipartisan vote about a month and a half ago. And that so included some funding for charging infrastructure and for boosting the electric grid and for demonstrating new technology. So that was a big help. So that was a good policy. The second one that's being discussed right now is part of the annual budget process in Congress. And as part of the budget, there's an aspect of it called the Clean Power Performance Plan, which would create a system of awards and penalties for electric utilities to grow their clean electricity generation. And it would do it on a pace that would get us to net zero emissions by 2050. So basically, you know, every year you'd have to reduce your emissions by a certain amount by increasing the amount of electricity that comes from clean sources. And if you exceed, um, you know, the, the pathway to get to net zero, you get payments. And if you miss it, you have to pay penalties. And so the idea is that all the utilities in the country would have to face that. That's an exciting one. Can you think of any under the radar environmental issues or less well-known factors that impact climate change that usually aren't discussed? Um, I guess, you know, we focus a lot on carbon dioxide because that's what happens when you burn coal or oil or natural gas. And those, those matter a lot. Um, and so wind, solar, batteries, and digitalization all help with that. Um, but I think there's been increasingly attention about other gases, including um, natural gas or methane. Um, and so that's natural gas before you burn it. So in a lot of ways, we'd be better off not burning natural gas. But in a lot of ways, we're better off burning it than leaking natural gas. Because if it leaks, it's not CO2, it's CH4, methane. And that's depending on how you evaluate it on the order of 30 times stronger in terms of how much warming it does. So even if there's 2% leakage of the natural gas system before it gets burned, that makes natural gas worse than coal. And so that's not a lot of leakage to happen. If you think about a system that starts in these tens of thousands of wells around the US and then around the world to a pipeline system that moves all over the country, including into smaller and smaller pipes that go into people's homes. And a lot of those pipes are really old. And so the idea that in that whole system that more than 2% of that gas could be leaking seems very realistic. It's uncertain. A lot of people have tried to put their, um, get, a, get a real beat on how much leakage there actually is, but that's a real concern. And so as we get more and more serious about CO2, um, there'd be some real benefits of doing something on CH4, on methane, uh, especially natural gas leakage. That, um, so that's one I would, I would put a focus on. Thanks for tuning into In a Perfect Policy with UW-Madison's Catalyst for Science Policy. For more episodes, please check out casp.wisc.edu slash podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review In a Perfect Policy wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Emily Tran, Isabella Whitworth, and Maya Gubnett with music by John Leggia. Thank you to Dr. Gregory Nemet for answering our questions and giving us hope.